0: think too many individuals place too much of a burden on the court to somehow solve the problem of the of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all that has transpired since then that is not the job of the international criminal court it is the job of the court is to take crimes that have occurred and to bring the leaders of those crimes to justice Uh, where it is possible to do so. You can't impose upon the court some kind of special responsibility to penetrate the territory of a non-state party and suddenly, you know, miraculously bring justice.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia Ahn. In February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine in clear violation of the UN Charter, which prohibits the use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. Since the invasion, there have been real-time reports of war crimes being committed by the Russian military in Ukraine, including the targeting and killing of civilians. In addition to a torrent of sanctions being applied across the world against Russia, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has also recently announced an investigation into possible Russian war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine after receiving referrals from 43 states parties. To discuss the International Criminal Court's investigation in Ukraine, including potential outcomes and all alter- paths to hold Russia accountable for crimes of aggression. I am joined today by Ambassador David Sheffer. Ambassador Sheffer is Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations with a focus on international law and international criminal justice. He was the first ever U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for war crimes issues and led the U.S. delegation to the U.N. talks, establishing the International Criminal Court. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Ambassador Sheffer, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Thank you very much, Julie.
1: So to get us started, could you give us a little bit of background on what the International Criminal Court is? Um, Specifically, how was it originally established and what is its current role in international law?
0: Well, the International Criminal Court is a permanent court with 123 states parties. Um, It is celebrating its 20th anniversary of of operation. It began on July 1st, 2002, with the requisite 60 ratifications of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which was concluded in uh, July of 1998, but then required a a sufficient number of ratifications in order to come into force. Um, It is uh, a successor to some of the the ad hoc uh, and hybrid tribunals of the 1990s, the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal, the Rwanda War Crimes Tribunal, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. I mean, these are all tribunals of very specific regional uh, context and very specific personal jurisdiction of who would be subject to the jurisdiction of of those courts, depending on which armed conflict or civil war or internal atrocities uh, were the subject of those courts. Um, That phenomenon itself uh, directed a lot of, uh, well, directed countries towards uh, creating a permanent court so that one does not need to build a special court every time there's an atrocity uh, uh, in the world. And so now that court exists. Um, It is headquartered in The Hague. Um, The United States is not a state party to it. The U.S. uh, signed the the Rome Statute on December 31st of 2000 um, uh, with the intention of joining the court, but then a new administration came in, the George W. Bush administration, and uh, decided that that would not be the objective of the United States. So we have not yet uh, actually uh, here in the United States, we have not yet become a party to the international criminal court. Almost all of our allies have all of our European allies with the exception of Turkey have become States parties. Many of our East Asian allies have become party like Australia and uh, Japan. Um, and so uh uh, we're kind of an outlier among our allies for not being actually party to uh, the court. Um, the court itself is organized um, as uh, a criminal court would normally be organized, although with great uh, uh, you know, sophistication because this is a permanent court um, of, of an international character. So it has 18 judges. It has three chambers of judges, the appeals chamber, the trial chamber, the pretrial chamber. It has a chief prosecutor and prosecutor's office that involves you know, a director of investigation and uh, all sorts of other uh, aspects of victim protection uh, that you would normally find in an office of the prosecutor. Um, there is a division for defense counsel. Um, and, um, and then of course there's a registry where the registrar actually is the chief administrator of the court and has a large staff to accomplish that. And then um, as an adjunct to the court itself, not as literally part of the court, but as, as a body that is recognized by the court as extremely important is the Trust Fund for Victims provides assistance for the victims of the atrocities within the jurisdiction of the court that are being investigated by the court, but also it's a basis for uh, collecting the funds necessary to pay reparations uh, in, the, in the judgments of the court if, if the judges so decide that there are, are uh, reparations to be paid. So I guess that's kind of an opening shot uh, obviously there are lots of situations around the world that this permanent international criminal court is currently engaged with uh, the subject of this podcast is is predominantly the Russian inve- you know the investigation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine which is seized by the permanent international Criminal court but it uh, it has investigations going on uh, all over the uh, world at this point uh, you know there are th- 17 investigations currently underway uh, for various atrocity situations around the world. So I, I'll leave it at that for the moment.
1: Right. And you mentioned a little bit about what the court oversees. So um, could, could you kind of go over what maybe the broad categories of crimes are under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and um, what parties are under its jurisdiction as well?
0: Right. Um, it has three, it has four baskets of crimes. Um, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and aggression, and as a ba- as a as a complete basket of crimes, we can call that the, these atrocity crimes, uh, if we want to talk about them collectively. Um, the crime of aggression is dealt with somewhat differently by the court than the other three bas- uh, other three categories of crimes because the, while the crime of aggression was recognized as being part of the jurisdiction of the court in the Rome Statute of the of the International Criminal Court, uh, it was not to be operationalized um, until a review conference many years later which took place in 2010 in Kampala, Uganda whereby, the definition of the of the crime of aggression was established, as well as how procedurally one would bring that crime to bear in the investigation and prosecutions of the court. And because it was an amendment then, this operational character of the crime of aggression was an amendment to the Rome Statute. Individual states' parties would have to approve the amendment. So only those that have ratified that amendment are actually covered by it. So while all states' parties are subject to genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity scrutiny, it's only those countries that have actually ratified the Kampala amendments on aggression, which are subject to the scrutiny of of the court for the crime of aggression.
1: And then could you also maybe as an example, before we get into the main focus of our podcast today, could you make it, maybe take us through how an investigation and case are handled? What are the general steps and how do these organs and actors of the International Criminal Court come into play?
0: Right. Well, actually, Julia, I forgot to answer your question about what what is the court actually seized with these days? Um, and among these 17 investigations are Atrocity crimes under investigation in Uganda, the Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, Mali, uh, uh, Venezuela, uh, and Ivory Coast, and Georgia, the country of Georgia, Burundi, Bangladesh, and Myanmar, uh, Afghanistan, and the Palestinian territories, and the Philippines. So one, and so one can see that it's a fairly broad brush of, um, of territory uh, that, is, that is under examination. And most recently, uh, as of February, well, uh, it has had Ukraine under investigation since the 2014 aggression by Russia into Crimea uh, and into Eastern Ukraine. That has been an ongoing investigation. Um, and now it's been catapulted into a major mega investigation by the International Criminal Court subject uh, as a consequence of the February 24th invasion of Ukraine by Russian military forces. So that's kind of the broad sweep substantively of, of what they're looking at these days. Um, in terms of an, uh, of an investigation itself, um, I'm going to try to make this as short as possible because the real answer is a, a very lengthy Rome statute of, of of the International Criminal Court. But um, investigations can be triggered in one of three ways. Either the Security Council refers the atrocity situation to the court under its Chapter 7 Enforcement Authority under the UN Charter. And that has uh, that has taken place uh, uh, twice. Once with uh, Darfur in Sudan in 2005, the genocide that uh, uh, took place there, um, and the second was Libya in 2011, when Omar uh, Gaddafi or uh, Gaddafi, General Gaddafi, uh, threatened um, the the uh, lives and well-being of. Uh, significant portion of of, um, of his population um, and thus began to do so uh, in early 2011 and uh, himself was indicted, although he passed, he was uh, killed uh, uh, several uh, weeks or months uh, after the indictment came down. Um, then there's a second way of referring matters to the court, and that is by state's parties. Um, and there were several self-referrals early in the history of the court by Uganda, uh, Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Mali later, in later years. Um, those are, you know, the state party itself referring a, a, an atrocity situation within its own borders, And typically, the aim there is to get the rebel groups who are uh, mostly instigating these crimes to bring them to bear under the weight of, of uh, of the International Criminal Court in terms of accountability. So politically, it's to the advantage of the central government to actually bring the ICC in. But always remember that once the ICC comes in, it will investigate any parties that are involved in atrocity crimes. So that can also include government forces. So that's always sort of a caveat that one has to recall or remember when you have a self-referral. And then there are are others uh, where um, uh, 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 very few in number, actually, of of a straight outright state referral, with the huge exception Uh, on uh, late February and early March of this year, 2022, when um, there were 43 states parties that referred Ukraine uh, to the ICC. This was an astonishing event, because prior to that, uh, states parties typically, mostly I think for political reasons, had not wanted to actually go on deck to refer another government to the ICC, because of course that has a political um, impact on the relationship between the two governments. Uh, but in this case, Ukraine uh, took it hands down with 43 referrals uh, in within a matter of days. Um, so it's kind of the mega example of state referral. Um, Venezuela was referred, by the way, by uh, six South American countries in 2021 to the court. Then the third way is the proprio motu uh, prosecutor referral, which is the action by the independent chief prosecutor to actually bring to the attention of the court a situation that neither the security council nor a state party has brought to the attention of the court. And that has been used many times. Um, Kenya, Ivory Coast, Georgia, Burundi, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Afghanistan. Um, These are, uh, uh, you know, uh, proprio motu uh, 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 referrals by the prosecutor himself or herself. And that has to be approved by the pretrial chamber of judges. So it goes through a judicial screen of, of, uh, of review. And only if the judges then agree to actually place it on the docket of the prosecutor for formal investigation does it. Then go to the formal investigation stage. Um, so, in terms of investigations itself, themselves, um, uh, the prosecutor dives into it with his staff uh, of crack investigators, uh, forensic experts, etc., um, and um, really has the discretion as the prosecutor to determine well is there enough here to actually merit bringing a situation of atrocity crimes to the attention of the court? Obviously, as a proprio motu prosecutor, if he does it that way, he's already made up his mind and he just has to convince the pretrial chamber. But if there is a state referral or if there's a security council referral, the prosecutor still has to undergo due diligence to Say well, that's interesting. Governments want this to be done, but do I, as prosecutor, believe there's enough here to actually pursue an investigation? And so that judgment then has to be made. And there have been instances where there's there's that judgment has been made, and and investigations, uh, you know, have been have not gone forward because the prosecutor decides there's not enough to go with. And once that is is underway, then, uh, the prosecutor brings, um, uh, uh, the matter to, uh, the court. And, um, uh, if, if there's enough to go with, uh, the pretrial chamber can start to issue arrest warrants of individuals designated by the prosecutor as being, um, you know, eligible, uh, not eligible, but as being the target of, of arrest warrants because, Uh, he or she believes that there's enough evidence there. Then the pretrial chamber either has to agree or not agree to issue those arrest warrants. And once the arrest warrants are issued, then uh, frankly, the the process is off and running. Then you go through a pretrial procedure that includes a confirmation of the charges by the pretrial chamber to make sure that uh, there's enough evidence there. And, um, and then once the charges are confirmed, then you start to set up your trial schedule. So that's the general drill.
1: Gotcha. And you mentioned a little bit about, um, Ukraine, and I'd like to focus a bit more on that. So, um, you talked about how 43 state referrals was what led to the current investigation of the ICC, um, in Ukraine currently now, could you talk a little bit about what evidence led 43 states um, to make those referrals? And beyond the state referrals, were there any other actions that catalyzed this decision to um, send the investigative teams into Ukraine?
0: You know, Ukraine is, is essentially a unique situation. Um, it, it was triggered on February 24th of 2022 with a blatant, overwhelming significant cross-border invasion of ukraine by russian military forces so there was no mystery about what was going on this was a massive invasion and the manner of that invasion <clears throat> was such that in the in the course of it day by day from february 24th onwards um the uh, there was just a a large number daily of actions that would constitute war crimes to begin with in terms of the way in which the Russian military invaded Ukraine. It basically shelled the heck out of civilian populations and their cities and communities with no regard for civilian welfare or survival. In other words, it was not a military invasion against A military force per se. Yes, there were some, you know, Ukrainian military uh, uh, units uh, uh, that were trying to stop the the Russians. But the manner in which the Russians actually invaded was to simply try to wipe out civilian cities and communities. Um, And that was being reported in real time. So by the third or fourth day of the invasion, it was not rocket science. I mean, it was just so blatant that uh, forty-three governments decided that this had to be referred to the International Criminal Court, just because the the media was reporting the obvious, um, and so that was the significant. You know, ter- you know that was that was it. Um, The Ukraine is not actually a state party to the International Criminal Court, but in 2014, after the Crimea invasion, there's a provision called Article 12, subparagraph 3 of the Rome statute, which permits a non-party to um, refer an atrocity situation to the ICC and literally grant the ICC jurisdiction for that atrocity situation. And that's exactly what Ukraine did. And it's simply uh, that that grant of jurisdiction to the ICC is is without an endpoint, and um, and so that then encompassed what occurred uh, on February twenty fourth and thereafter. So the ICC has the jurisdiction by virtue of, of Article Twelve, Subparagraph Three, um, and uh, uh, the the uh, I can just say that. Uh, one of the phenomenon of the Ukraine situation is that yes, it started with a massive act of aggression, state upon state aggression. Now, one can only go back, you know, you can go back to World War II and to the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials afterwards to understand that within that act of aggression can be. Uh, 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 an almost unlimited number of war crimes, and then of crimes against humanity, and even of genocide. In other words, the aggression opens the door to all of those crimes being committed on Ukrainian territory. And the ICC has jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. But with in this particular case, it does not have jurisdiction for aggression because... Um, The Kampala amendments of 2010 stated that um, a a non-party state that commits aggression actually gets a pass on that. Why? Because it's a very long story. But at the end of the day, it's because that non-party state itself has not signed up to the Rome Statute and ratified uh, the, the, uh, the treaty. So in this case, the ICC will not be investigating the crime of aggression. And we can talk later about how that can then be resolved in an alternative form. Um, But that's really where we we got started in late February, early March.
1: And I guess for listeners that don't really know, what, what does it exactly mean for the ICC to open investigation in a country? What, what can we expect to be happening in Ukraine as the investigation occurs?
0: Oh, so much. You know, it's, it's incredible, Julia, how um, never before in human history has an atrocity situation been so rapidly and intensively investigated as in Ukraine since February 24th. The response has been quite immediate. There are teams of investigators on Ukrainian territory from the European Union, uh, from uh, uh, the United Kingdom, the United States, um, uh, uh, and of course the International Criminal Court itself has, has large teams of investigators on Ukrainian territory. And in addition to that, Um, you have, um, uh, the Ukrainian government itself through the office of the prosecutor general with its own investigative teams on the ground day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. Um, and so this is an intensive operation going on. Um, and, um, I honestly don't know at this moment, whether literally. US investigators are on the territory of Ukraine. I know that they're in the vicinity like in Poland and in various NATO countries nearby, assisting with all of this. Um, But the point is there's a large coalition of governments that um, have been making their own experts available um, uh, in order to investigate all of this. So there's no shortage of investigation. In fact, there's so much that one of the issues that still lingers is how to properly coordinate all of the investigative teams, because you don't want to uh, take advantage of witnesses by having them interviewed multiple times. That's not good. We don't want to do that. Uh, That's rather abusive to take a witness and investigate, put put that witness in front of numerous different investigative bodies. Um, uh, That's, you know the victims have their own problems to deal with their trauma etc so you want to be very very careful um and also uh crimes of sexual violence have to be investigated uh with with the victims very very carefully um so as not to further uh, to re-traumatize these victims through the investigative process so but all of that is being done um very intensively and um, uh, and uh, so I, I think that's, I don't think there'll be any shortage of evidence. Uh, the, the, the Ukrainian uh, prosecutor general has now thousands of cases uh, of particularly war crimes that uh, she's investigating. Um, and, and certain individuals, a couple of Russian soldiers have already been put on trial and convicted. Um, and there's more of those types of trials taking place. I'm sure in, in Ukraine in short order, uh, but the long-term effort on the part of the International Criminal Court is to uh, investigate and bring to account the leaders, the military leaders in the field, the military leaders back in Moscow, the political leaders in, in Moscow to account for these crimes. That that's a longer that's a long process. It's not a incident by incident prosecution. It's rather looking at a body of atrocity crimes that have occurred and then associating those crimes with leaders who uh, basically unleashed the aggressive beast onto uh, Ukraine.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned how there were some convictions already. Are more convictions something we can expect in the upcoming months? And can we expect anything beyond convictions? And where where can we really see or look for these updates?
0: Well, we always want to remember that despite the horrid character of these atrocity crimes and of what we've seen unfold in Ukraine, as lawyers, we want to follow due process. Uh, And so you would never want to predict, unless you're the prosecutor who wants to make his or her case, uh, you would not want to predict that there will be convictions. But I do, one can imagine that, first of all, we know there will be more trials coming down the pike in ukraine itself um uh you under ukraine domestic law they actually have the the right to to hold in absentia trials which we don't have in our common law system and in most european countries there's no right of in absentia trials but ukraine has that so the prosecutor general may make a decision at some point to actually hold an in absentia trial uh, or more uh, even though the defendant is not in the courtroom um, so one can can possibly uh, assume that some of that will take place but of course if there are Russian soldiers who have been captured and are are the targets of investigation for war crimes then um, they would be able to be brought into the courtroom and prosecuted in in Ukraine. There's also the possibility that um, other countries close to um, um, Ukraine might exercise what we call universal jurisdiction under international criminal law, namely that they have on their, their criminal statute books the right, uh, if, if they can gain custody of an individual, to actually charge that individual with atrocity crimes committed in another country not in their country, but in, another, in like Ukraine. And one can expect some of that will probably take place. Um, the, uh, the individuals who are suspected of a committing atrocity crimes will probably try to f- filtrate through other European countries at some point. Uh, they're not all going to hide in Russia forever. And so it's possible that in those individual countries, universal jurisdiction may come to the fore uh, for prosecution, this has certainly been true for Syria, uh, and and the Syrian atrocity crimes were certain Syrian perpetrators decided that they thought they'd live happily ever after in Germany until they were noticed on the street as having uh, by by their victims who were refugees, and then of course brought to trial. Um, so uh, so that's all there is, as as a possibility for the future. And particularly in the International Criminal Court, uh, it, it will take time before they issue indictments, but they will be issuing indictments against leaders, most of whom either are, you know, comfortably in Russia um, or Belarus, uh, might be in the eastern part of Ukraine when the indictment comes down. Remember, the ICC can seal its indictment and, you know, issue it when the opportunity arises to actually uh, physically arrest the individual.
1: And with respect to issuing indictments and warrants, because Russia is not a state party um, having withdrawn in 2016, I, as I understand it, they don't have an obligation to really cooperate with the ICC there. So how much of a hindrance will that be? And can there be anything that can be done, maybe sanctions or by the UN or other allies in order to compel Russians or Russia to comply?
0: Well, of course, that's the big question, um, is the pragmatic one of, well, even if one could indict the Russian leaders, how do you actually gain custody of them to bring them to trial? And um, I, I just want to point out, Russia never joined the Rome Statute. What it did was it also signed the Rome Statute of the Rome of, of the International Criminal Court, just like the United States did. But it decided in 2016 to withdraw that signature. But it's not a ratified party. It never was. Uh, treaty law has you signing first and ratifying second. And they took the first step, but they never took the second step. And they withdrew their signature. Um, uh, there will be ways to uh, accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Uh, it, it may not be a perfect process. It may take many, many years. Um, there's There are ways in which uh, uh, governments can bring pressure to bear on Russia to actually cooperate with the International Criminal Court. Um, we have a whole body of sanctions uh, imposed against Russia. It may be that some of those sanctions would not be lifted until there is uh, necessary cooperation by Russia. Um, and that would include turning over indicted fugitives of justice. Um, so that's a, a tool of leverage. But of course it competes against a, a, a process of negotiation with Russia to bring the fighting to an end and bring, frankly, the horrors to an end. So you always have to weigh those issues. I mean, that's 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 the stuff of diplomacy and negotiations. That's and that's not necessarily lawyers involved. That's the political leaders who will uh, need to to negotiate all of this. Um, uh, and and then there will also be Russians who have been indicted by. The International Criminal Court, for example, who may decide five, six, eight years from now to take that trip, you know, to to Berlin or to Paris uh, that they've been wanting to take. Well, the moment they do that, of course, if they've been indicted, they're going to be subject to arrest on on territory outside of Russia. Um, And. So all of those those realities are out there. I think it's important, though, to not place too much emphasis on whether or not the individual can be brought into custody. I think the important point is that they be indicted, that they be shamed into understanding uh, before the world of what they have done uh, with the particularity that the prosecutor can bring to the exercise and the rigorous evidence-gathering record that the prosecutor brings to bear, uh, that these individuals then become pariah in in the international community. And ultimately they may become pariah within Russia itself. Uh, Don't underestimate the possibility that someday uh, the Russian people will finally uh, had enough of Putin. And if he's indicted by the International Criminal Court, that gives them uh, another basis, not just his domestic performance, but another basis to say why why do we want to be led by an indicted uh, an indicted fugitive from international justice? That was the fate of Milosevic in Serbia. He was indicted by the Yugoslav Tribunal, and ultimately the uh, Serbian people kicked him out, and he he was flown to to Hague to to stand trial.
1: And Ambassador, you mentioned before the crimes of aggression and how they're treated a bit differently by the ICC than, for example, genocide, um, crimes uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes, and the fact that um, Russians, because they're not a state party, um, cannot be uh, investigated or or indicted for that. Um, I guess my question now here is, as to my understanding, there are no other international courts with jurisdiction over crimes of aggression. And I've heard other experts talking about other paths to hold Russian Russians accountable for this. Um, for example, establishing an ad hoc international court or a court through the UN. I'd like to hear from your perspective, what might be the most effective, but also legitimate means of, of holding Russians accountable for this?
0: Well, I think the most effective is one that I've been working on with various colleagues, um, uh, so I'll, I'll put it on the table, which is to build a special tribunal on Ukraine for the crime of aggression and to do it in a manner similar to how in the 1990s we created the special court for Sierra Leone and the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. In this case, uh, it would be a treaty between the United Nations as an international institution It has legal personality, can enter into treaties and does so all the time. Um, and that treaty be between the UN and the government of Ukraine. This is what we did with Sierra Leone, as well as with Cambodia. Uh, We did it through slightly different paths in each case. With respect to Sierra Leone, the Security Council adopted a resolution, not under Chapter 7, but adopted a resolution recommending to the Secretary General that he negotiate a treaty With Sierra Leone to build a court to deal with the civil war in Sierra Leone. And in Cambodia, it was the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, that passed a resolution recommending to the, or requesting that the Secretary General negotiate a treaty uh, between the UN and Cambodia. Um, I think it's the latter option which uh, should prevail here, because obviously the Security Council would be subject to the veto of, of Russia and China if it, if it sought to, uh, if, if a, a draft resolution of that character were brought before the Security Council. So that's not going to work. But I think it can work with the General Assembly, which uh, shortly after the invasion on February 24th and and later in March, um, passed a resolution of condemning Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. So that is the possibility, and uh, once there is a treaty between the UN and Ukraine, there would be attached to that, uh, uh, you know, uh, treaty, the statute of the court, um, uh, which would be a special court on aggression. Um, it would be uh, it would have a, a dominant. Uh, role for the UN in terms of appointing judges, the prosecutor, etc. And then Ukraine would have a, a an important but a secondary role in, in terms of certain judges, certain uh, uh, components of the prosecutor's office, and of the registry would be uh, participated in by Ukrainians. But the dominant feature would and the majority of it uh, would be international in character. And that Court would then uh, investigate the crime of aggression and uh, move towards uh, uh, ultimately the preparation of indictments if if the evidence can be established. Um, so that's uh, that. That's where I think accountability for aggression could be established, um, and um, I'm very hopeful that that process can can unfold.
1: And when it comes to indictments and convictions. Are there any actions that can be taken by the ICC um, and other parties against people that end up being convicted?
0: Well, if they're arrested, um, you know, and brought to trial, of course, the action is the trial itself, and then the punishment, which would be a, a if convicted, a, a imprisonment, and possibly a freezing or seizure of the assets of that particular individual, and the. Possibly unique character, somewhat unique character of the Ukraine situation is that uh, so many of these leaders, particularly those who surround Putin, Putin himself, uh, are individuals of considerable wealth. So there is something to be seized there. Um, So uh, that that could that could certainly be the process. Now, um, uh, you know, if if the individual is not brought into custody uh, after an arrest warrant is issued, then of course that individual will be um, punished in the sense of being shamed uh, under the indictment, being forced to live the rest of his or her life on Russian territory um, and uh, not traveling at all outside of Russia um, for fear of being uh, captured. Um, And of course, it will provide further uh, fodder for historians in future years to say, yeah, this is an individual actually indicted by the prosecutor. And here's the indictment and what it says he or she did. Um, And that will be the historical legacy of this individual. Um, So, you know, uh, international criminal justice is the long game. There's a long arc. And it can be 10, 15, 20 years, but ultimately it usually catches up with the individual.
1: And Ambassador, we like to end our podcasts by looking towards the future. And so I know the ICC has in the past garnered some criticism, um, including those citing its lack of power. I know we see here in this example with um, crimes of aggression being treated a bit differently by the ICC. So in your opinion, is there anything that can or should be done to, um, to improve the effectiveness of the ICC?
0: Well, you know, I would actually take issue with some of that criticism of the ICC with respect to Ukraine. I think too many individuals place too much of a, of a of burden on the court to somehow solve the problem of the, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all that has transpired since then. That is not the job of the International Criminal Court. It is The job of the court is to take crimes that have occurred, to properly investigate them, and to bring the leaders of those crimes to justice uh, where it is possible to do so. And because not all countries are party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, you can't impose upon the court some kind of special responsibility to... To, to penetrate the territory of a non-state party and suddenly, you know, miraculously bring justice. Um, the, the atrocities in Ukraine have to be dealt with very directly by governments to stop them. The court's not there to stop them. Uh, the, uh, that's, so the, the idea that because there is a court, you know, why are there continuing crimes occurring in Ukraine is not the issue. Um, That's an issue that is political and military in character. It's just uh, the same that we faced in the Balkans in the early 1990s. Uh, We created the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal and people thought, oh, suddenly now somehow all of the atrocities are going to stop. Uh, We certainly never thought that within the U.S. government. Um, That had to be dealt with very directly on different planes, not judicial planes, but on political, military, strategic planes, diplomatic planes of engagement. Um, So I wouldn't, you know, I I just think we have to be careful not to say, oh, my goodness, you know, why hasn't uh, the International Criminal Court suddenly solved this problem? Of course, it hasn't solved the problem. Of course, it has not done so yet. That's somebody, that's other people's responsibility. so uh, let's see, I, I, uh, oh yes, but you know, in terms of the court itself, um, there has been an independent expert review that was, a, that was finished in um, uh, uh, almost a couple of years ago um, that has a whole checklist of, of ways in which to improve the court's performance um, in terms of the time it takes to investigate, to bring uh, individuals to trial, to go through the trial process, the appeals process, um, uh, issues of of how to better fund the court so that it has sufficient resources to do the job it's mandated to do, um, uh, ways in which governments can uh, better uh, uh, cooperate with the court. Um, So that independent expert review, which is out there for anyone to read, is really the template now for how to improve the court's performance. Um, and so I would say that's that's where the, the real work is, is in terms of following through on the recommendations of the independent expert review.
1: Ambassador Sheffer, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It was really enlightening.
0: Thank you, I, I enjoyed doing it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this
1: episode of the Hopkins Podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.